I was at Oil Belt Christian Service Camp in Flora, Illinois. I was going into ninth grade, and it was the evening service. I don't remember what time or what day of the week it was, but it was the evening service. We were going into the chapel, and I chose a chair kind of in the middle of the crowd with my friends, just a random chair, nice chair, comfortable chair. And that night, there were probably about 100 people in the chapel, but it felt like the preacher was preaching a message that was just for me. And he was talking about ministry and about serving God, and there was this opportunity at the end of the service, this time of invitation, where we sang a song, and if you felt called to go into vocational ministry, you could go forward, and people would pray with you and encourage you. And there were, have been a lot of things in my life that have led me down this path, but a large reason why I'm in ministry today boils down to the fact that I chose to sit in that chair that night for that message. Fast forward a little bit, that led to Bible college, where I had a class, Principles of Interpretation. That's a mouthful. Principles of Interpretation. And I chose to sit in a chair next to a pretty girl, and I flirted with her incessantly the entire semester while I pretended to take notes in class. And Lindsay and I had been friends previous to that, and so things may have ended up the same way. But one of the reasons why she and I are married today is because I sat in that chair next to her in that class. Fast forward again, eight years later, uh, I've been in ministry for eight years, a little frustrated at that point in my life. And I, I really didn't know why, because I had a, a comfortable job at a church with people that loved me. Every year we had an annual vote to see if I still had a job, and every year I got 100% approval. I had friends, I had a home. It was a pretty easy church to pastor and take care of. It was, it was very comfortable, and yet I was discontent. And so I went to a conference at my alma mater to try to find some encouragement. And that night I sat in a chair in the back of the auditorium and a woman named Teresa Welch came on stage, a woman from this church. And she introduced the speaker for that night, a man named Gene Apple, who formerly served at this church. And both of them spoke pretty fondly about a place called Monmouth, Illinois. And I remembered seeing something about a church in Monmouth posted on a job board somewhere. And I thought maybe I ought to check it out. And again, there were other things that led to my wife, my family, and I moving here. But one of the reasons that we are serving here today is because I sat in a chair at that auditorium on that night to hear that message from Gene. Chairs are important places. And important things happen when we choose to sit in a chair sometimes. But we got to ask, why do we choose to sit in these particular chairs. I mean, I could have sat in any chair on any night on any of those occasions, but I chose that one. Why? That's because chairs are comfortable. I mean, right now, a lot of you, and I'm just, I'm going to go ahead and ask for a show of hands. How many of you are sitting in the same chair you tend to sit in week after week here? Yep. Most of us, some of us are honest. I know where you sit, by the way. Most of you are sitting in the same spot. Why do we choose these particular chairs? They're not different from any of the other chairs in this room. It's because that's where it's comfortable. We like that spot. There's something about that location that's comfortable. Chairs are comfortable things. Here's the seductive part of chairs and their comfort, though. As comfortable as they are, we can't stay there. There comes a time where we have to get out of our chair, where we have to leave that comfort, and we have to take the next step. At that night at church camp, when I heard that message, I could have stayed in my comfortable chair. I didn't have to go forward, and I didn't have to make that decision. But if I hadn't, I might not be preaching right now. I had to get out of the comfortable chair and take a step. 
Sitting next to Lindsay in that class, flirting with her was fun. It was easy. It was comfortable. But if I didn't get out of my comfortable chair and take the next step to actually ask her out on a date, all of that was for nothing. And I could have just sat in the back of that auditorium in that chair that night at Ozark Christian College and listened to this preacher talk about a church in Monmouth, Illinois. But if I hadn't gotten out of my chair and taken the step to actually pursue that avenue, my wife and I may have missed out on preaching and serving all of you. And we love it here. Chairs are for a time and a season and oftentimes for a reason, but then there comes a time where we have to leave that comfort and take the next step. This message is part two of a series called Contagious, a faith that spreads. You know, we as the church, we've been given this gift of salvation that comes through Jesus, and God has given us a job along with that. Go and tell everybody everywhere this good news of what I've done and this life that I offer through Christ. That's our job. But as we look at the early church and as we study church history throughout the ages, what we notice is that there are certain obstacles that show up generation after generation after generation that we as the church have to overcome if we want to be faithful to that calling, if we want to have a contagious faith that spreads. Last week, we talked about one of the first obstacles we saw in the book of Acts. It was this temptation just not to act, this temptation of inaction. Today, we're going to talk about the temptation of comfort the seduction of comfort. It's something that we as a church today have to guard against just as much as every generation's come before us because chairs are very comfortable places. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the app, the FCC mobile, uh, FCC Monmouth mobile app, download on your Android or Apple phone. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to start. Now, like we said, last week we looked at the first temptation, the first obstacle was inaction. This week we're going to see that the second internal obstacle that the church had to overcome historically was that of comfort, a temptation of comfort. So a little bit of backstory to catch us up to speed. In Acts chapter 2, the church is born. The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles. They start to preach the message of Jesus. In that day, 3,000 people give their lives over to Christ. Boom, instant megachurch. That's the birth of the church. It was a great day. And from that point on, the apostles continue to preach, and more people continue to put their faith and their hope in the work of Jesus, and the church just continues to grow until we get to the end of Acts chapter 2, and we get a snapshot of what life in the early church was like. And it's a beautiful picture. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 44. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is a picture of, of the early church in its early days. People are gathering together daily. They're listening to the apostles teach daily. They're breaking bread together daily. They're encouraging each other daily. There's no need among them. They're loving on each other. They love being together. This is every single day of their lives. This is a pretty incredible picture. From this point on, the church just continues to grow. They continue to love each other. They continue to meet. The Lord continues to add to their number daily. Until we get to the end of Acts chapter 4, around verse 32, here's an updated snapshot of what life in the church looked like. It said, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, 
all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Again, an amazing picture. They're meeting together daily. They're loving each other daily. They're growing and worshiping daily. Things are so great, and they love each other so much, and there's so much unity that if there is a physical need with somebody in the community, they have this excess. They go, they sell, they bring the money, and they distribute it to those who have needs so they can support one another. An amazing picture. Who wouldn't want to be a part of this? And here's the even more amazing thing. Depending on how you date certain historical events or how you view the chronology of the book of Acts, things could have been this way for as long as four to five years. That's a pretty amazing thing. Four to five years meeting together daily in this kind of environment. So what's the problem, right? Because you can kind of sense that we're building up to a a big but. Well, here it is. We are four to five years into this story and we still haven't left the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus gave his church a job. He said, I want you to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, the very ends of the earth. We're four to five years into this. We're still in the city of Jerusalem. And we might be saying, well, four to five years, that's not that long of a time. But we need to understand the mindset of first century Christians. Most of them believe that Jesus was going to come back by the end of their lifetime. That's like 30, 40 years from now. So if you only have 30 to 40 years to get to the ends of the earth with the gospel, four years is like 10% of your time. This is more than just a little bit of a hiccup. This is kind of a stall. And we might ask the question, why? Why have things slowed down? Why haven't they left the city of Jerusalem yet? And I think we have to look back at these pictures of what life in the early church was like. It was very comfortable. They met together daily. They loved each other. They loved what they were doing. They loved the support. They loved being together. They had a very comfortable church community. Now, I'm not saying things were easy. There was some difficulty. There was some persecution that started. There were some internal difficulties that they had to deal with. But there was still daily meeting together, daily loving each other, daily encouraging each other. That is an environment that it's very difficult to leave. And so this idea of going into Samaria and to the very ends of the earth it just doesn't really seem to be very high on the to-do list until Acts chapter 8. A lot happens between Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 8. Persecution starts to ramp up, and in fact, there's a man named Stephen, a very faithful man who gives his life in testimony to the gospel of Jesus. And on that day, something terrible happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. So that was Stephen who was murdered. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered, listen to this, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went, which was Judea and Samaria. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So here's what's happened. Four to five years, we're in the city of Jerusalem. Things are comfortable. There's not a lot of motivation to leave. And then this terrible thing happens, scatters the church into Judea, Samaria, and the plan of Jesus actually continues to move forward. 
And we might say, well, that persecution, that doesn't sound like a good thing. And it wasn't a good thing, but it was the necessary jolt needed to send the church out of the city walls into the mission field to continue the purpose that Christ had given them. You look at what happens in Samaria. Philip goes down there and begins to preach, and these Samaritans, who oftentimes were seen as half-breeds and lesser than than the Jewish people, they receive Jesus, and there is rejoicing, and there's celebration, and people are added to God's children, and eternities are changed, and the kingdom advances, and the mission moves one step forward to everybody, everywhere, hearing what God has done, because people left the comfort of their nice circle in Jerusalem. And there's a theme that starts to show up when we look at this part of the church's history. Comfort has the tendency to slow the gospel down, but discomfort has the tendency to move the gospel forward. Comfort has the tendency to slow the gospel down, but discomfort tends to move the gospel forward. And here in the early church, we can see at the beginning, there's a temptation to stay within the comfortable walls of our circles, or if we're going to use our metaphor, to stay in the comfort of our chairs. It's this discomfort which sends them out and moves the gospel forward into Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. And this is a message and a theme that we today need to be particularly aware of. As we've said, these obstacles that we're talking about in these series, these are generational. Every generation of the church has had to deal with the seduction of comfort. But we today, as American Christians, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, we today may be the generation who has to guard against this most vigilantly because of our society and the values of our culture. I'm gonna talk about American church and the American Christianity a little bit today. I don't mean that in in an offensive, unpatriotic way. I love my country. But there are particular values in our society that are kind of unique to us that don't lend themselves to faithfulness very well. And we just need to identify that so we can be faithful. One of those values is this idea of increasing personal comfort. That's something that we in our culture are encouraged to do. We're encouraged to be comfortable. We're encouraged to labor and to work to increase our own personal comfort. And in fact, that's a value that we hand down to our children very subtly without even saying it or articulating it that way. In the way that we handle money and talk about money and the way that we purchase and acquire and the way that we schedule our time, we are sending the message that says comfort is a priority and we should all try to acquire more and more of it. Here are a couple examples from our society that kind of illustrates what I mean. If you've worked in the world of retail, and really this expands beyond retail, but, but you experience this a lot in retail, there's the golden rule of retail is this, the customer is always right, right? Now, if you know what I'm talking about, you know that there are times that's just not true. It's baloney because the customer can be objectively wrong, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that the customer feels appreciated, that the customer feels satisfied, that they're comfortable. So the customer is always right. When I worked at Domino's Pizza, I was amazed we ever made any money because we gave things away to angry customers all the time. That was the company policy. If somebody complains, give them free stuff. We want to keep them happy. We want to keep them satisfied, comfortable. There was a man who called one time who ordered a medium pizza. I will always remember this pizza. A medium pizza with quadruple black olives. Oh, it was gross. We tried to tell him on the phone, are you sure you want four times the normal amount of olives, because this is not going to go well, man. He said, yep, that's what I want. It was the stankiest pizza I ever made. We put it through the oven. It stank the whole store up. I knew when I was cutting it, this isn't going to go well. And sure enough, the guy called back 10 minutes later, my pizza tastes terrible. And I thought to myself, of course it tastes terrible. You put an entire olive grove on a 12-inch pie. What did you think was going to happen? 
but we gave him free stuff anyway because the customer is always right. We want people to be happy, satisfied, comfortable. Burger King, they've moved beyond this now, but for years, you probably remember it, their entire marketing campaign revolved around four simple words. Have it your way. Whatever you want. We are here to make you satisfied, to make you comfortable. Our world revolves around this idea of increasing personal comfort. Movie theaters, other than paying, I know we all pay absorbent amounts of money for movie tickets and popcorn and so on, but despite that, believe it or not, a lot of movie theaters are having a hard time turning a profit for various reasons. One of those, though, is because of Netflix. People would much rather stay home where it's a little cheaper, but also where they can be more comfortable to watch a movie. When I'm watching Netflix, I can stay in my sweatpants. I can pause the movie if I got to go to the restroom. I don't have some kid kicking the back. Well, I do have a kid kicking the back of my chair. But, you know, after 8 o'clock, I don't have a kid kicking the back of my chair. I don't have some lady with her cell phone taking selfies and texting in the middle of the theater with her bright light blinding me so I can't see what's going on. I can just be comfortable at home. So that's what a lot of people are doing. But there is one segment of the theater industry that is actually turning a profit, and it's those theaters that offer a luxury movie-going experience. If you, know, if you haven't been here, these are theaters that offer higher quality food. Sometimes they have a wait staff that will come to your chair so you can order your food, and they always have very comfortable reclining movie loungers. People are willing to pay money to go to these because I can be more comfortable in that situation or in that scenario than I can at home. It's a unique thing. See, comfort, we're, increased as, or we're encouraged as a society to seek after comfort, to seek after that, that higher level of personal satisfaction. That's one of the values and the virtues of our society that's kind of unique to us. So here comes Jesus challenging that when he says, I want you to be my witness. I want you to go to the people in your life and I want you to tell them the good news of what I've done. I want you to talk about this deeply personal experience that you have and this relationship with me that you have. And I want you to come, not really confront, but I want you to talk to people about this in a meaningful way. That's not a comfortable thing. Jesus, that's, that's kind of scary. But here's the thing with what scares us. Sometimes the stuff that scares us the most are the things that we need the most. And in this instance, we need this virtue, this value of increasing personal comfort. We need it challenged. We need to be scared out of this because we are called to be faithful witnesses, not to be comfortable in, in our chairs. Let me tell you the story of the first time I shared Jesus with somebody. It was, a, it was a phenomenal disaster. So in Bible college, you are encouraged to be active, to share your faith. And so it was like our second week of Bible college. My best friend, Lance, and I, we went to the same school. His roommate, Lance, me, we get in the car and we say, you know what? It's Saturday night. We don't have much to do. Let's go tell somebody about Jesus because when you're Bible college, that's what you do. And so we pulled up to this car audio shop and it was this place on Main Street. And after it closed, that's where a lot of guys with kind of souped up cars would go and hang out in the parking lot. So we went up there and we just picked a random guy and he was kind of a hard looking guy. He was wearing his do-rag, had a teardrop tattoo. And we were some Abercrombie wearing white boys. And so we had a lot in common, obviously. So we just picked this guy and we said, hey, man, you know about Jesus? And the look on his face was just shocked and nervous. Like, we, you would have thought we were nervous going up to him. He was surprised that here comes three boys just want to talk to me about Jesus. What am I going to do? And he said, nah, man, I'm straight up pagan. And I don't think he, he meant pagan. I think he meant I just don't believe in God because pagan is like I worship Zeus and Thor and all that stuff, and I know that's not what he's doing. But he just, he said this. And I remember those words. I don't remember anything else about the conversation. 
I remember the look on his face was that blank look of, I wish these boys would just leave me alone. I remember thinking to myself, this is going terrible. Why did we think this was a good idea? And then we ended the conversation with, all right, see you later. And then we just got in the car and left. And I felt like all of heaven just facepalmed in that moment. Like, what are you doing? This was terrible. Why did you think this was going to work? It was a phenomenal disaster. So here's why I share that story. It was scary. It was awkward. It was uncomfortable to go up to this random person and start talking about Jesus. But I started thinking after that, and I thought to myself, you know what? It didn't kill me. I'm still here. And you know what? If I can talk to some random guy in this terribly awkward situation about Jesus, I can probably talk about Jesus in situations where it makes more sense with people who I do know, people I have a relationship with, that I have a rapport with, who I do know, hey, this is going on in their life. They need some hope. They need some comfort. I can talk about Jesus when it makes more sense. That scary, awkward situation, forcing myself out of that comfort zone, it showed me that, hey, you can do this. You can overcome this fear. And you know what? It's gotten easier and easier to talk to people about Jesus every time since then. And in that way, it's been easier and easier to be faithful to Jesus since then. Sometimes the stuff that scares us is the stuff that we need the most. And that's why last week we instituted the Just One Challenge. Last week we encouraged you to be thinking and to be praying because every single one of us has somebody in our lives who we do know, who we do care about, and that we love that does not have a life-saving relationship with Jesus. And we will encourage you to be praying for that person, to be praying for boldness, to be praying for opportunities, praying for words so that you can have this moment to speak and to share Christ with this individual. Maybe it's speaking and saying, let me give, give you an, an opportunity to accept Jesus or tell you about who he is and what he's done. Maybe it's something as simple as inviting them to come and hear about Jesus this Easter. Whatever avenue works or, or is best for the situation, God will guide you in that. We wanna encourage you to take this step. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's awkward, but you know what? Sometimes the stuff that scares us the most is the stuff that we need the most. You may have noticed over here, there's a display set up with our Just One logo. Those are the cards that you've turned in last week. There's a list of names there. There's no last names on there, but there's a list of names there. And we would encourage you, if you've got time this week or any of the weeks that follow, come in, say a prayer for somebody, light a candle. You know, you might think, well, that's what the Catholic Church does. You know, it's okay. It's just a symbol that says, I want to pray before God and I want my prayers to burn before him. Pray for them because we want to do this together. Sometimes that which scares us are the things that we need to do the most and we need to get out of our comfort zones and be faithful witnesses. But the seduction of comfort is not just something that we as individuals have to guard against. This is also something that we collectively need to be aware of. We as a church body must guard against the seduction of comfort as well because it's very possible for entire churches to succumb to the seduction of comfort. You know, sometimes it shows up in funny ways. You know, it might show up in a, in a petty argument. It might show up in a, a petty, or not a petty, but a silly tradition or, or just this weird little thing. It shows up in a lot of different ways. Here's a video that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. Tired of having to wake up, get dressed, and drive across town just to attend your favorite service? Introducing Virtual Reality Church. Start by choosing a church building that meets your needs. Tired of the stress of having to choose a Sunday morning outfit? Never make a fashion mistake again because Virtual Reality Church will style you based on your denomination. Not a people person? Select the introvert experience to completely eliminate the welcome team, meet and greet time, connect cards, and that awkward hold hands with the person next to you thing we still do. 
Next, personalize your morning by choosing the worship experience that you want. Feeling a touch of white guilt? Add a minority worship leader. Custom options even let you tailor the skinniness of your worship leader's jeans. Finally, no more having to endure songs that you don't like. With Virtual Reality Church, you're in charge. For the sermon, choose the amount of conviction you'd like and we'll select a pastor for you. We'll even let you tailor your sermon topics so you'll never have to attend a Vision Sunday or a sermon series on giving. And never worry again about dozing off during the sermon. With Virtual Reality Church, you can sleep as long as you want. Kids being bad in nursery? Who cares? Worried about missing a football game? Enter your favorite team and we'll provide notifications when the game is starting. Never miss a kickoff again. Want to go forward for prayer? Well, if you selected a Pentecostal service, always stand in front of a mattress. Even connect your social media accounts and we'll post for you. Get credit for being super spiritual all from the comfort of your couch. Finally, an option for people asking the question, how can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Virtual Reality Church, the future of church attendance. Now, obviously, that's a joke. It's satire. It's a comedian. But I've met Christians and I've been in churches where it feels like people are almost here to this level of how can I make church more about me? How can I be more comfortable? How can I be more satisfied? You know, sometimes I heard about this church. It's a true story. They had this argument over a clock in the sanctuary, and they actually had to take a vote as to whether or not they should remove the clock from the sanctuary. And people were ticked until they talked. Thank you. That was a true story, though. That's just for Mark DeSelmsum. <laughs> That's a true story. There was a, a situation where there was a, a petition that went around. For, it was a formal petition that would require all church pastors to be clean-shaven because they wanted a clean-shaven staff because everybody in Jesus' day carried around a Bic razor and made sure they're squeaky clean, right? There was a, I've experienced this myself at a church where I served. We had this big uh, stained glass window that faced the west. And anytime we had like an evening service in the summertime, so like Good Friday and stuff, the sun would beam in through this window at just the right angle that if you sat in this one pew, it just blinded you completely. And of course, that was somebody's favorite seat. And so after every time we did this, this individual would come to me and say, we really got to do something about that sun. And in my heart of hearts, I am more than a little snarky. And so my first thought was, you're right, we ought to move the sun. We ought to do that. Or we ought to have custom curtains that are very expensive made because all of those options are easier than you sliding two feet to the left, you know? But this is what happens sometimes is we get caught up in this pursuit of comfort and we can mistakenly assume that church is about me and what I want and about being more comfortable, about being more satisfied. It's an easy trap to fall into. It's the trap that we see in, in Acts chapter one. I like how this is. I like the people I'm with. I like how things go. It's the seduction of comfort. We always have to be aware of this and guard our hearts against this. Now, I don't think that we're a comfortable church, but I do think that we could just as easily as the Church of Acts become a comfortable church. And so we want it to be on our radar. We want to guard our hearts. We want to guard our minds. And we always want to check our motivations. Is this just because I want this and it makes me more comfortable? Or is this what Jesus wants for his church? Is this what it's going to be faithful? Is this what it looks like to be good witnesses? Is this what he's calling us to do so that we can move his mission forward? These are the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves if we want to guard ourselves against the seduction of comfort. Now, sometimes when a church falls into this trap, it's kind of funny. You know, we hear these stories and we giggle. But most of the time, it's not funny at all. There, this is a conservative number. There's a big figure, range from 3,000 to 500, a, a most conservative number I could find. There's about 3,500 churches a year close their doors in this country. And it's not because of, of, of 
bad things necessarily. Sometimes there is such a thing as a good church closure. They've run the race well. They've served their purpose. They've done everything they're put on earth to do. And so it's well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes a community declines, you know, jobs leave, people leave, and a church, they just can't keep the doors open because there's just not enough people. That's not their fault. There's nothing wrong with that. But a majority of these 3,500 churches a year that close in this country, that's not the case. It's because they've chosen comfort, and they've chosen arguments over clocks and clean-shaven staff and stained glass windows and the sun being too bright, and they've chosen a path of comfort over a path of mission. Tom Rayner is a guy who used to be the head of Lifeway Publishing, very big Christian publisher house. Uh, he did a lot of work with church consultations. He's made a career out of studying the church. And he noticed that there's this pattern that shows up in these 3,500 churches a year that close. And he boils it down to really these eight signs that we need to be aware of. And he wrote a book about it called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. It's a very interesting read, really short read if you've got time. Would you be surprised to learn that four out of these eight signs of a dying church revolve around this idea of increasing personal comfort and personal satisfaction. Because when a church becomes about me and what I want and what I can do and making me comfortable, there just isn't enough time or room to worry about Jesus and what he wants and what he calls us to do. And this is why we have to guard against this. If the church of Acts, the very first church where they had the apostles leading them, hit a four to five year stall because they got comfortable, guys, all you got's me. We definitely got to be on guard, okay? I am not Peter or Paul. But we together, if we're aware of this, if we keep our hearts and our minds focused on what God is calling us to, on the mission that Jesus gave us to be witnesses in our communities, in our county, in our state, wherever he leads us, if we stay focused on the goal and ask, what does he want instead of what do I want, we can guard ourselves against this danger and seduction of personal comfort. Now, I understand that that can be scary at times because it's going to lead us to make changes and to take steps. We can't stay in the comfort of our chairs. Sometimes it's scary to take steps and to make changes like the ones that are coming later in April. Sometimes it's scary to choose the cause of Christ over a very consumer-driven kind of faith. Sometimes it's scary to say, Jesus, what can I do for you? Instead of saying, I just want to come to church and sit, listen, and leave. All of these things are scary at times. But remember, that which scares us is sometimes what we need the most. So my encouragement to each of us is to get out of the comfort of our chairs. Say, God, what's the next step that you want me and this church to take? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for the challenge of your word. We know that if we follow it, we will not be comfortable because you've not called us to a life of comfort. You've called us to a life of faithfulness. And so we ask for courage as we move forward, both as individuals and as a body. We ask that you would help us to identify those areas of our life where we have made your church about us and that we would seek to give it back to you, to be faithful, to be stewards of your bride instead of people who hold your bride hostage. And Lord, we just want to serve you. We pray for our ones. We pray for our family and our friends that need to know you. We pray for opportunities where we can be bold, where we can get out of our chair and to say, this is who Jesus is and what he's done. We pray for opportunities as a church where we can be bold and shine in this community and draw people's attention to you and your glory. Father, we just want to be faithful servants. Give us the strength and the boldness to get out of our chairs and to follow after you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.